Welcome back to The Drop, this is Michael Saramella, and if you hear a little pitter-patter going on, that's because I'm recording in a car and it's raining. So, sorry about that to any audiophiles who like to listen to surf news, but you're just going to have to grin and bear it. This week, we are going to bring Buckley back on to discuss everything that happened in news, and as we alluded to last week, there is actually a big, big, big one. You probably know it already, but if you don't, you'll be hearing it just soon. We're going to talk about the next episode of Van Stab High presented by Monster Energy. We're still at Lakey Peak. The waves are still pumping, and there's a bit of controversy and drama. The surfers are not happy with some of the claims and calls that we made. Uh, after that, we're going to talk about Buck's chat with Elo. We're going to talk about maybe the biggest air ever done, and unfortunately not in Van Stab High presented by Monster Energy, and a surf scene that it's just you got to hear it to believe it. So let's get straight into it. Mikey, we're back. We are back. It's been a week, and uh, some things have happened, some things that we prognosticated. Ooh, yeah, we're a bit of fortune tellers. We're clairvoyants, if you will. Yeah, so, I mean, we could do our little chit-chat thing, or we could just get straight into the big news. Oh, okay, all business, Ciaramella, let's go. Griffin Colapinto leaves Billabong for... Quick silver. Oh boy. Oh boy. We told you something was coming. Didn't we tell him, Mikey? We did. And this is, I mean, this is pretty big. This is obviously one of the most high level and high profile surfers in the world. Probably should have been in the top five last year, but wasn't. But he's been on Billabong for 12 years since he was 12, meaning it's uh, half his life. He's 24 now. Half his life. Yeah. I did that math. <laughs> And what makes this really interesting is that he moved to a different business within the same company, like the same umbrella. They're both owned by board riders. So, um, yeah, we basically went and asked Griffin why he made the change. And, well, why don't we listen to what he has to say? That's awesome. Um, What made you want to make that switch? Was it a lot of reasons? Was it one primary reason? Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Um, I think it was just, yeah, I... I really wanted to make this. I wanted to make the switch because I was just the direction that they're going in is uh, really exciting, mm-hmm. and uh, they're just like they're kind of like doing a full reset on the whole brand and the imaging that they're going for, and uh, yeah, it seems like they just kind of want to get back to the core of surf. So. Uh, I I really think that's super cool. So and that that really like got me psyched to to be a part of that revolution. I guess. All right. So Buck, what was your biggest takeaway from what Griffin had to say? Not just on our podcast, but also on the site where there is a long form interview. Interesting one. I mean, I think, and even I have to call a comment on our site already. Like Griffin has that point about how at Quicksilver, like. I mean, I, I worked there and I worked in marketing there and I guess some brands have like, I feel like Volcom is a brand that has a good job of like, does a good job at making it feel like, okay, this is a Volcom surfer. It almost makes sense. Like maybe not as much as it did in the era, like Ozzy Wright and Bruce Irons, but like, I still feel like some brands have like, okay, this is a vision for like, this person fits our brand exactly. And Quicksilver is more a thing where like, yeah, they had like Kelly and Dane and Craig on at the same time. It's like, they kind of just get 
surfers that they're into and let them be whoever the hell they want to be and just support them, you know? And so Griffin saying that made a lot of sense to me. And then his whole bits about like working with that guy, Ben Crow, who is like a world famous mindset coach guy. I worked with like Phil Knight of Nike and Andre Agassi. Hope I'm saying Agassi right. Sorry, Zanetti, if I'm not. Agassi, is it? Agassi. Is it Zanetti now? <laughs> Fucking hell. These names. Yeah. Enough. Buckley, a little rule of thumb. However you think something is pronounced, it's the other way. <laughs> okay, well, Agassi, it's just a weird pronunciation. Fuck you, Andre. Anyway, Andre worked with a great coach named Ben Crow that Griffin also worked with that it seemed that he played a really big role in Griffin's life just in terms of how he views his life especially as a professional surfer which let's be honest it's a pretty obscure way to kind of make a living and sounds like Griffin walked away from his experience with Ben thinking like okay thinking a lot about more philosophical things which is pretty rare for I think a 24 year old so yeah Griffin's interesting he's he's thinks about life in a different way and I don't know. It's cool. I guess Quicksilver alum do that. Yeah, and to that point, one of his uh, stipulations for coming over to Quicksilver was that he wanted to rock the OG red logo, you know, the one that obviously Kelly Slater used, uh, Dane Reynolds used. I mean, the whole Quicksilver team used it at that time, but it's been defunct for a while now. They've gone to the more understated black one, and Griffin was like, no, I want the red one. That's the one that I grew up with. That's the one that I found, you know, like that all my favorite surfers had. And to his point, I actually do, like, just him bringing it up again made me realize, like, wow, that actually is, to me, I think the most, like, iconic surf sticker to have on your board, especially on your nose. I can't, like, I think to Billabong, I think to Rip Curl, I think to O'Neal, and none of them stand out as much as that red Quicksilver logo to me. That's a good point. The old red box, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Maybe Volcom, maybe, but it's still, like, Volcom never had the the caliber of surfer that Quicksilver had. Like it's just, it's, it's probably a, you know, a relic of Slater and and Reynolds, but that, that sticker does like mean a lot. It has a lot of weight to it. Well, I think the beauty of Volcom was its ability to snug up into a nice, you know, early two thousands nose, you know, that was a good shape to get right up in there up top. (laughs) That's really true. So this is interesting because Griffin's being brought on and, from what we understand, he is now Quicksilver's marquee guy. I think he's getting paid the most. I think he is being seen as the new face of the brand. And, I mean, that's got to be weird if you're Kanoa, right? Like, not only have they grown up together, they competed together. Kanoa's technically done better than Griffin. Like, even just this past year, he he got Griffin to get inside the WSL Top 5. You know, Kanoa's obviously got a huge pull in places like Japan and kind of like globally in a sense. Like he does really seem like a, a globalized surfer in the same way that uh, Leo Fioravanti does. Griffin is maybe more connected to like U.S. Australia. But yeah, how does that sit with you? It's an interesting one. And I love that it came up in the interview. Um, Corey Stevens did the interview for us and I thought it was a great chat. And yeah, it comes up because they are a similar age i mean kanoa surfs for japan but he grew up in Hainan beach which is the same county as where griffin grew up so they have surfed a fuckload of heats together and doesn't seem like that's stopping anytime soon especially when it comes down to things like chopu this year so yeah it's interesting like i look at kanoa in a very different sphere than griffin i don't know i think Kanoa's presence, the way he does everything, which I guess goes back to Griffin's point about like how Quicksilver operates at their team, like 
Kanoa just feels like a really unique person to me in a way that like Griffin's more he talks about like core stuff in this like and I do think Kanoa's core like you don't get you don't finish top five in the world without being a core surfer you obviously fucking love it if you're gonna do that but Griffin seems like he probably would relate more to the the person who's you know trying to surf every single day and just save all their money just to go on surf trips and all stuff like that whereas Kanoa seems more like he would relate to the person that like thinks about surfing as a sport and wants to like bring out their best like that kind of vibe does that make sense yeah i mean just to if i were to parse them the way i would say it is this kanoa is a better competitive surfer but griffin's a better surfer like he cares more to your point about the things that are like their i guess everything in surfing is subjective but things that can't really be scored you know like style and you know, he he often in interviews he'll bring up things from films that were old, like old, old films, you know? Like, he clearly cares about the culture, where he came from, where surfing came from. And, um, yeah, I guess maybe to your point as well, he's just perceived as more of, like, a man of the people versus Kanoa is, like, the, the superstar and really relishes in that life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, Griffin would probably reference campaign, and Kanoa will talk about some athlete that we may not even be aware of in another sport you know like andre agassi (laughs) sorry (laughs) (laughs) so anyway griffin goes from billabong to quicksilver congratulations to all involved um i'm really excited to see that red sticker out in the wild again and i am curious to see how this fuels the ongoing rivalry between kanoa and griff i know i think it's great too i mean even our own Stace, he's at Quick. Like, I think there's some really good people at Quick, and not to say that wasn't the case at Billabong. In any way, there's some incredible people there as well, but I guess this one, after having spent some time there, it is it feels more near to my heart, and just to think about the crew that used to work with there and what they'll do with Griff and the projects that we can expect as just kind of outsiders and surf fans now, it's like, it's exciting to me, so I'm excited. And uh, anybody at Quicksilver listening to this, if you've taken umbrage with anything that Buck or I said, just remember that Stace is the one editing it. So Yeah, that's all. Thank you. Watch. Vans Stab High Indonesia, presented by Monster Energy, Episode 2. It's all about the straight air, folks. You do not spin if you want to win, because... Mikey, you were pivotal, I'd say. Great word, pivotal. You pivoted into a new format this year. And round one, you couldn't spin. You had to go straight in the air if you wanted to win. Can you talk about that? Can you talk about the new format and kind of the thought process there? Yeah, it was really simple. It's that, you know, we have this event that is going to have four rounds, essentially. And we don't want somebody to win by doing an air reverse every single time. Because... You could, you know, you have an hour to surf. If you go out and just do a really good, clean air verse in every single heat, it's possible that you can make it all the way to to the final and even win the event. And we think that that is boring and it's not pushing the sport forward whatsoever. Some of the people in the competition and some of the people watching may think, well, how is a straight air pushing the sport forward? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. If you listen to Nathan Fletcher talk about it, he'll tell you that basically... Straight air is not only the the foundation, but it's kind of like the the benchmark too, because you can kind of go bigger with a straight air and it, yeah, just really sets the pace for what's possible in the air, as we saw with his air at Pipeline two years ago. 
Ah, well, as always, folks, it's great to hear from Stab's SVP of Tours and Competition, Mikey Ciramella. <laughs> it was interesting on the ground there, though. Like, I feel like the cool thing about Stab High, probably one of the things that separates it, one of the many things that separates it from the WSL is that, like, you just... the I know the WSL has ways to interact with their surfers, and, you know, they do change things based off that feedback, but... With the way we do things, it's like the feedback is you're at the same establishment as them at 7 p.m. And somebody's just going to come over and tell you how they think because you're, you know, it's that's just how it rolls. And so with this format, it was really interesting. Like, I feel like I've only been to two stab eyes, but it was interesting. Like, it's it's changed every year, right? And this year was a pretty big change with this new format. And I loved it because I think that, like, you always have to have a box to paint in, right? Like, if you don't have a box, if you don't have a canvas, then how are you going to paint? Like, you have to have some kind of boundary to say, hey, this is where you apply what you're supposed to apply. And you can get as creative as you want within that. Do whatever you want within that. And so with, I think setting clear guidelines is a good thing. And I think an hour is, because these seats were an hour, it's a good time to you should be able to land something in an hour i think it's not it's not like a real real heat but it was real interesting like hearing different surfers feedbacks about about the new format and prioritizing certain things at certain points in the event so it was interesting on the ground there but i think in the end everyone was happy and i feel like we had some good conversations and i feel like we now have a great episode for everybody to watch too no i'd say not everybody ended up happy to your point about us being different from the wsl uh one surfer would agree he called our event way worse than the wsl because he hated being told what to do (laughs) and um yeah he thought that the format was total bullshit and we honestly like i'm so happy to get that feedback so long as it comes from like a place where they actually care about surfing rather than they're just like a negative person which this person totally is cares about surfing so much and that's why they're so passionate about this and i'll just i'll just say it it's matt miola he called us out he said that it was bullshit he didn't want to paint inside bucks lines he wanted to go jackson pollock and just spray paint everywhere as he tends to do when he goes surfing and he you you'll see in the heat he definitely uh takes his own path and so do some of the other surfers (laughs) i think my favorite part in this episode is an air that shane sykes tries that I don't know, like, airs you usually hurt your ankle or your knee. You know, you're not really, it's not really considered charging beyond that. Maybe some people, like Jeremy Flores at Lake UP, actually really hurt himself trying an air. He cut his head halfway open. It's disgusting. But, like, there's an air that Shane Sykes tries in there that he disconnects with his board, and it just looks so violent. He almost hits his board, but even, like, the amount of space that he covered from where he's up in the sky to where he lands kind of in this not great part of the wave, it just looks like a very, very painful thing. It looks finally like something that could be somewhat compared to a skateboarder throwing themselves down a set of steps. So it was it was great this year, but there's definitely some interesting conversations around it as well. So Shane's air that you're referencing is done on the first section, like the real bowl of the wave. And this is something that as judges, 
we were so clear about with the surfers and also just like with ourselves that hitting the first section has significantly more weight out at Lakey Peak than hitting the end section, the closeout, especially on the right, which obviously most surfers were going because of the wind direction. When you watch it back on video, like when, you know, how everybody's going to watch this episode at home, you really can't tell the difference. Like the, the sections don't look, you know, that much bigger or smaller or more powerful or weaker than the other. And it's tough because you're you're watching it back now and you're like, huh, like was that air actually better than that air? And if you're just looking at what happens above the lip, maybe it wasn't. But I think it's just important for the viewers to know that like when you're actually there watching it, it is so much gnarlier to hit the first section than the end section. Like you and I could hit the end section all day. Maybe we wouldn't land every air, but we'd at least try and not be terrified. Hitting that first section and really committing and going straight up through like the steepest part of the wave, you have to hit it so close to the lip line to even get the projection to go back into the wave, especially doing a front side air or straight air. It's just such a different ball game. So just something to sort of keep in mind when you're watching this show is like they're really even though you may not be able to see it, there was a clear difference. And the surfers understood it and felt the same way as well. It's just it maybe doesn't translate that well to video. It's been said before, but the gap between what is seen in video, like, and even what's seen from the beach, when you see something in person, like in the water, it's a whole new level from what we're seeing from the the tower at Lakey Peak. But yeah, it's that's a good point because we really did prioritize that. And this is going to come back up in this podcast on a different topic, this whole section you hit thing. But uh, just wait for that. Anyway, watch episode two. It's a contest disguised as a video series, but it also kind of becomes this like summit where you hear how the best air surfers in the world think about airs. Like in these interviews, everybody's just so kind of raw. Like they don't, they don't think that it's a WSL thing where all their sponsors are watching and you have to say the certain thing at a certain time and there's a script you have to go off of. Like, to me, you really get to, like, the interview parts of it, you really get to see how people think and it invite, it kind of invites you into that world and lets you just kind of feel like you're having a conversation with these people in, in a loose way. It's, I don't know, that to me has been one of my favorite parts about this series so far and it's, uh, go watch it, you'll love it. We have got a special opportunity for all you drop listeners, but first, I would like to tell a little story. If you're a fan of this program, you may know that I live in Europe. I've been living here for, I think, six years, and if you've been to Europe, you would know that the changing culture, the changing etiquette, if you will, it's a little bit different around these parts, okay? You may be familiar with a maneuver known as the Euro change, which is essentially just an unfussed approach to covering any specific part of your body when you're changing in and have a wetsuit. Um, you're just naked in the parking lot, okay? That's what it is. That's what it is. And note that it's called the Euro change. It's not called the world change because it doesn't work everywhere. You know, if I go back to California, for example, I try to pull a Euro change, I'm looking at penal code 314. No pun intended on the penal code. That's indecent exposure, Okay, and first time it's a misdemeanor, but you keep doing it, you get in some big trouble. So you need a solution there. You need something so you don't go to jail. We can't go to jail, okay? Luckily, I've got a savior here. Our friends at Slow Tide until the 12th of November are doing buy one, get one 50% off changing ponchos on their website, slowtide.co. That's buy one, get one 50% off. You're not going to jail. 
I'm not going to jail. We're getting a good deal. All you have to do is enter the code BOGO, BOGO if you will, BOGO upon checkout and you will be able to buy a changing poncho, get one 50% off. This is only for our listeners in the US and Canada um, because the prison systems there, you don't want to go, okay? Don't do it. It's not available in Europe. We don't need ponchos here per se. They're very nice. A lot of people use them, to be honest. I'm, the year change seems to be fading out, really. But uh, I'm keeping traditions alive over here. But when I go back, maybe I'll be poncho guy. All right? Go get some ponchos. Slowtide.co. Use the code BOGO. Don't go to prison. Prediction. Over 50% of the competitors will ride carbon fiber boards at the Surf Ranch next year. That's a bold claim. It's a bold claim. I know. But I like that. I, The writer of this thing, which, um, Pedro, I'm sorry, I think I'm supposed to go kind of on the R to start a word in Portuguese, so Pedro Ramos. <laughs> but uh, I might be agassiing this thing. <laughs> Basically, I wanted a piece because I just, for a while you'd see dark arts and you'd see like, okay, people have been doing carbon fiber surfboards for a while, right? Dark arts made this huge push. Felipe won a world title on them this year. John John was on them earlier in the year. It became, obviously it became this, dark arts really pushed the technology forward, right? And I think we're now getting to a point where they are not the only ones who are capable of producing carbon fiber boards. Law says its own technology. There's people doing it in Europe. There's people doing it in Australia. As a result, I think we're going to see way, way, way more of these things. And so Pedro and I talked about a piece where we basically break down, okay, what exactly do these boards do and why? Should you get one, etc. And to tie a little bow on that, I just kind of made that claim. Okay, so I was in the wave pool with Leo, as we heard about on this podcast, but those same clips, I mean, Leo's going to be on the CT next year. He was riding a carbon fiber board there until he broke it. Yes, they can break, folks. Reef Hazelwood, carbon fiber board. Yago Dora, on the air that you and I saw, and we're like, oh my god, that's fucking massive. Carbon fiber board. So it's pretty clear. To me, it seems like these are kind of an evolution of, like, everybody would say, like, epoxies, lighter, and has the same kind of... You know, you want it in softer waves, but there are certain waves that it might feel a little bit overpowered. Carbon fiber seems like an evolution of this to me. And I really do think this. I think that over 50% of the competitors will ride carbon fiber boards at the surf branch next year. Do you okay. think I'm wrong, Mikey? Well, I do think you're wrong. And also, I have a question. Have you ever had a carbon surfboard experience? Mm-hmm. I have. I. What'd you ride? I rode one of... I wrote a duplicate of one of Taj's Stab in the Dark boards. Ah, how was it? It was fun. It wasn't quite my dims, but it felt good. Like, it was it was kind of weird. It was a knifey board, and I was riding it in bad waves, but the carbon fiber kind of made up for that, but it was still quite a pointy, bladeish thing for the waves I was riding it in. So I, I, I didn't feel like I had the best conditions to judge it. Okay. But I have seen you ride one. Maybe you're more, you know, you had one made in your dims. So why don't you tell me? I did. So I've had two different carbon experiences. The first one I rode was a Dark Arts, which 
I think it was a little bit big for me, and I ended up finding that, one, I couldn't get it to sit down in the water. It just wanted to be on top of the water. And two, I thought it was pretty stiff, like too stiff for me. Now, watching guys like Felipe and John John, etc. ride these boards, it's clear that they work. I think my theory is that because it's all carbon, they just, uh, it kind of requires a heavier footed or, or just a heavier surfer in general, or obviously maybe just a better surfer. No, they don't actually require better surfers because I've seen people that are like not even great surfers have a lot of fun on them. So I think in order to get the flex that you want out of them, you just have to be a little bit heavier. I don't weigh very much, so it didn't work great for me. But recently... I got a board from Keith Tabul. I still don't really know how to say his name. I'm sorry, Keith. Um, it's Agassi. It's Agassi, um, who is, along with um, Justin Turnus of Dark Arts, Keith is the creator of KT Surfboards. Both of them are referenced in this article and both give quotes and their thoughts about it. So KT, if you don't know, he's the guy that uh, makes boards for Kai Lenny and Emi DeVault. They're out of Maui, and he has, like, a windsurfing background. So came from outside of, like, pure surfing, but still obviously in the surfing realm. And he brought some of those ideas into shaping his actual surfboards. And, you know, the carbon thing, it's obviously not his idea to begin with, but he also does a vacuum seal, same as Justin Turnus, Dark Arts. And I rode one of his boards in carbon over in Indonesia, it was part of a joyride, so I don't want to give too much away, but it was a very different experience, and it's because his carbon boards have a sort of different construction. There's an Negra cloth that goes on top, which I guess has a little bit more flex to it, and I enjoyed it more than the Dark Arts for sure, but also what I was really doing was I was comparing the same exact board, the same dims. One was just PU, and the other one was EPS blank with no stringer and then carbon vacuum seal on top, and it was wild the difference between the two interesting interesting well what percentage if you think i'm wrong what percentage of surf branch competitors do you think will be riding carbon i'd say 33 i think a third of the surfers on the world tour will be riding them i think that 50 is just like think about how many people are on tour i mean i guess technically surf ranch is after the cut so it won't be that many surfers to go through but still um you know you're looking at what, 24 men and 12 women, so that would be 18 surfers on black surfboards? I don't see that happening. I'm looking at maybe 12 surfers on black surfboards. Are you just worried about the heat there, or what? I mean, th- is that not a factor? Like, I I don't think so. I think they're able to, like, just roll out of the Tachi and Escalades and then hop right in. <laughs> like, isn't that how... <laughs> I went there, I went to that event once, and nobody was hanging out. It was, like, 105 degrees Fahrenheit. It, the surfers would just literally show up in escalades, jump in the water, and then leave. Um, so I think I think their wax is fine. Okay, fair enough. I mean, obviously, Felipe has done well out there on a carbon board. I believe he won an event. You can cut that out if I'm wrong, Stace. But, yeah, so you, you, the heat does affect them, though, I will say, like, just surfing in Indonesia. And it's not this, like, immediate thing, but, like, over time, the wax does just begin to smear. And if you leave them in the sun for even one minute, like, even, like, upside down, they are seriously, like, almost too hot to touch. So you just have to be really conscious with sort of how you maneuver them around areas that are not shaded. But back to the 50% thing. Shapers are interesting people, but, like, you know what else? Professional surfers are human beings, which is to say that they are fucking flawed in many ways. And I think that I've had these conversations with shapers where they always think that like, you see the probably the same thing with coaches 
where if a surfer isn't getting the results that they want or think they deserve, they will, like the rest of us human beings, look at anything but themselves to try to find blame. That could be surfboards or coaches. It's often both. I think you introduce this new shiny thing, just like you'll see like a, a certain brand come to play and a lot of surfers hop to that because they think maybe like, oh, everybody who's doing good is on that. I think that, I mean, Felipe won last year. Griffin with his new Quicksilver thing, his boards in that whole piece are clearly carbon fiber. They're Lost uh, Black Dart, I think the construction name is. Jack Robinson's getting into them. I mean, I think it's going to be 50 if I'm wrong, let's do the let's do the math. Let's do the math after the mid-year cut next year. But I'm gonna be right, and you're gonna be wrong. All right, Buckley, should we make a bet then um, on whether it's above or below 50? Okay, so if it's 50 or above, you win. If it's below 50, I win. What are we betting? We don't have BetOnline.ag odds on this right now, so it's just gonna have to be between you and me. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa! You said you said 33. Meet me in the middle, buddy. Okay, so 40. Yeah, let's go 40. All right. We'll call it 40. But then your your claim 40. is wrong. That's fine You could me. win, but your claim could still be wrong. So how does that work? Well, have you ever watched sports? You can make a claim about something or you put your money where your mouth is. And I'm doing both. <laughs> All right. So you're saying 50, but you're betting 40. What is the actual bet? Like money? <laughs> yeah, or whatever you want to make it. Hmm. I will bet you... Let me think about this for a minute. The winner gets to because it's all surfboard based the winner gets to order the loser a surfboard that they have to ride every day for a month unless there is like serious reasons otherwise like if it's pumping and like one of us has a dumb board then that won't work like you're allowed to go get tubed but like unless (laughs) unless it's really like unless waves are spitting then that's how it works you have to ride that board for a month. All right. And are there any, like, stipulations on what this surfboard can or can't be? No. Like, I mean, can it be, like... <laughs> it has to It has to be... Let's Okay, maybe we'll look at, like, if the WSL has a line in the rule book about what that is, what what <laughs> equals a surfboard. Like, it can't be a sup. Um, it can't be a kayak. Like, yeah. It can't be, like, a wave-riding vessel. It has to be, like, defined as a surfboard... Let's look to the WSL. <laughs> but, like, what if I ordered you, like, a, a 10-0 log? Like, I feel like that might be a, a sort of overreach as well. Oh, it'd be a big, it'd be a problem. <laughs> Let's cross that bridge when we come to it, Michael. All right, it's on the record. If it is uh, 40, if it's 40, exactly, 40%, neither of us has to do it. If it's below 40, I win. If it's above 40, you win. Let's go. See you in June. Aton Osborne has entered the chat, and I think I said that name right. It's tricky, but Aton, that's how we do it here. The chat that he has entered is the conversation for best air ever done. And just like we were talking about on the Lakey Peak, stab high, hit the first section thing, Aton hit a section that it just looks like a fake photograph. It looks like a fake thing. It is surreal. It's an air rev, and it does not look real. It's in a new Billabong edit, Interlusion, and watch it eight times. The whole film is sick. It's about 20 minutes long, but 
the Aton thing, you have to watch a few times to even figure it out. Okay, I have so many thoughts on this. First of all, I almost feel bad for Billabong that this air happened on this trip, because if it didn't, we'd be talking about all the other incredible parts of this trip. Like, you got Parco, you got Creed, you got Ken Martin, you got all these other people that are, you know, great surfers on this trip. They get the best waves you could really ask for on a boat trip. They get Greenbush. They get this crazy right that you maybe have seen before. And, and all these amazing things happen. It's like the best brand video you could ever ask for. And it's all completely overridden by this one air that Eitan Osborne does. And to your point, this is not only, like, not a section that you should be trying to land an air on. This is a sort of section that even, you know, back in the day when guys were like photo guys and they do like flyaways out the back, like you wouldn't even be doing that on this section. Like it is so scary and giant and like throwing out. And it's because I guess for me, you know, guys have done way bigger airs in terms of how high they go above the lip. Like you think about John's alley-oop at back door or Noah's thing at North Point or whatever. Like they're significantly higher objectively above the lip. But the thing is that they're hitting a section that even if the section that they're hitting is tall, it's going into, it's like a shoulder, right? So they're like coming down on a part of the wave that's a little bit smaller and a little bit softer. Whereas Aton is coming from like a 10 foot face section going into a 10 foot face section that's coming at him. Like it, there's more energy coming at him than there is on the part of the wave that he's riding on. And he just hits this thing and you can just tell, like, I think we've all probably had this feeling at a certain point in surfing where you're like, fuck it, I'm just going to try. And you like commit to something, you know, that you probably shouldn't. But for us, it's on like three foot closeout sections and it's still terrifying. I can't imagine what he would have been thinking going up to this lip because he's got like proper time to think about it. Like he's doing like a full bottom turn and he just sees the whole Indian Ocean hurling out in front of him you have to see it to like really understand it. And I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast have, but he basically does a full rotation. He's a decent height above the lip and then he's falling down. And on any normal wave, because of how far he projected, he would have landed like in the flats, but this wave had so much power and the lip had so much like launch to it that he couldn't get past it. So what he ended up doing was he ended up like halfway down he gets caught by the explosion coming back up at him and he does like a second air almost like you you can't see it that clearly because he's like sort of in the white water but he clearly goes back up before he gets to the bottom of the wave and then he somehow rides away super cleanly so to me hands down the biggest craziest air i think has ever been done on a surfboard it's interesting because we at stab high we talked to a bunch of the surfers there to get their opinion on what's the best they've ever done. And it's a funny question because people don't like to answer it definitively. They like to say like, Oh, these three are like very few people go, okay, this is the one, you know, but we push people to do that. And Noah Dean at North point was the one for most people. And to your point about how, it's almost inconvenient for this to be in this clip because that's all people are going to talk about. When you're going back years later to try to find these errors, it's very helpful because you go, okay, this is like, I feel like this video on the long run is going to get way more views because people are going to remember, oh yeah, that's that one that has that psycho error. So when they go to remember that Aton Osborne error, they'll have to go rewatch that video 
Or, I mean, more realistically, some guy named, like, Scooby Surfer 98 is going to, like, post just that single clip, like, a rip it off, and that'll get some views, too. But still, I do think it uplifts the entire edit. And I guess when you talk about the best there ever conversation, yeah, I don't... It, I would, I guess I'd go it over Noah Dean's. Like, it, it's, I think that in most other situations in surfing, the wave matters more than what you do. Like, like if you, you could have the same exact technique on a four-foot barrel or a 12-foot one. Obviously, the 12-foot one, especially if it's going square, matters more, right? And so why shouldn't that apply to errors? Why shouldn't? Why should errors be this thing where all that matters is what this, you know, what grab you're doing or what this you're doing? Like the wave should matter. And if you do it on a heavier section that showed some like boldness and like, yeah, fuck it, I'm going to land it. Like, I think that should matter a lot. So, yeah, I'd say best air ever done. I'm going. Then earlier this year, we had another error that we asked, is this the best air ever done for that, that Luke Swanson backflip? So it's just crazy the progression going on. Oh, it's happening fast. It's happening fast. Well, yeah. They still had plenty of sections at Lakey Peak, I'd say. Oh, for sure. But yeah, I mean, you've got you've got a lot of airs to watch this weekend, folks. You've got a lot, a lot of airs. Um, this is also free. This isn't on a premium. This is a build long edit, so that's free. Stab high is free. Lock yourself in a dojo and watch people do things that you can't do on a surfboard. It's very fun. We all do. <laughs> Where are all the lefts, Eric? Surf Ranch. <laughs> okay, so I caught up with the... There's so many acronyms here. The WSL CEO ELO. We had a chat. We've had a chat before. This one, I guess the last chat I had with him, I felt like he kind of wanted to get these numbers out about how much the audience has grown. And it felt like the whole conversation was kind of trying to drive that way. I'd ask a question, maybe you'd go a little bit off-piste and aim towards that. This one was kind of just like I could ask whatever I wanted. And so last one I had a bunch of questions I didn't get to because I only had 30 minutes with him. This one I almost had to make up questions on the fly because he wasn't going to just kind of commandeer the conversation and rip it his way. So I asked him about a variety of things, including why there aren't more lefts on tour. Um, I framed it in the way that, like, after they announced the 2023 CT schedule, Joanne DeFay and Tatiana Weston-Webb both called them out on Instagram about wanting more rippable lefts. And, okay, both those people finished in the top five this year. How do you process that feedback? Well, we talk to the surfers a lot. We've got a great system in place with our surfer reps. And so we talk with them about, you know, what we need to do in terms of, like, figuring out ways to get more lefts on. Obviously, we had one with Chilean. Um, this year, we've got Surf Ranch on, which obviously is is certainly uh, a rippable left. And we're trying to work with them to figure out other places that we can look to and go. And, and I think that the conversation has been very productive. And I think as we look toward the future beyond 2023, looking at 2024, 25, and 26, taking the input about places not only that we can go that we have seen before and try to return to, G-Land being one of those, Cloud Break is an obvious one that would be love to get back on, on the calendar at some point, and also new locations. Yeah, where are our surfers and our championship tour would like to go? And But, yeah, I guess 
he's good. He's a good dancer. He does a bit of ballet. I don't know. Maybe it's salsa. Maybe it's whatever Andre Gossi's into. But ask some questions. Got some answers, but a few of them are pretty Elo-ish, aren't they, Mikey? They are, but I also think you got some good stuff out of him. I mean, there were a few thoughts in there. There was one where it was actually really funny. I, like, laughed at how condescending it was <laughs> towards Stab. <laughs> <laughs> You were explaining, uh, they were talking about G-Land and, you know, how difficult it was to run that event for all the logistical reasons. And uh, you were talking about Lakey Peak and how that was difficult for logistical reasons. And he said something like, imagine that on a factor of probably 10. And that's what it's like to run a CT. (laughs) It's like, okay, Jesus. Like we had 80 some people over in Lakey Peak. I don't know how many they had at G-Land. I'm sure it was more. But um, yeah, it was it was pretty funny seeing his like the way that he perceives stab as opposed to the WSL. Like it's clearly like we're just such small fish in his giant pond that he's just feeding and fishing out of whenever he pleases. But yeah. Yeah, there was, it was an interesting chat. Like, you know, I asked him about the lefts. Surf Ranch is apparently the solution to that. I liked pressing him a bit about the Surf Ranch just because this conversation happened shortly after this massive Wave Garden update where it was like, okay, here's these pools that can apparently now push a button and create really, really different waves than they've created in their, like, 20-year history and so I was like, well, Surf Ranch still just looks like a fucking train pulls this. <laughs> I didn't say it's word for word, but come on. Looks like this train pulls a thing and, like, the wave just goes. Like, what? can we do something here, you know? Um, but, yeah, it was some dancing in the answers. But he always, he always gave something to the questions. And, like I said, it, it did give me the opportunity to just ask more of a range of questions in the – than I have done in the past like it was a fun chat and really I do appreciate his time like it is it is nice that he is keen to just pick up the phone with us and um answer where all the lefts are Eric so go read it go read it see how Elo thinks and or condescends us all right folks it is time for the surf sin Ooh, okay, this is this is one dear to my heart as well. It's um I wonder if there's a sin here and we'll get to that when it's time. Oh, there's a sin here. Is there really? I okay, I think I know where you're going to go with this already, but let's let the people hear it then we'll we'll unpack it. Hi guys, Bill from the south coast of New South Wales, Australia, here. I recently discovered uh, coloured wax, which I'm quite enthralled with. You can see where your foot placement is, you can see where it's wearing out, and you can just do designs. It's also fragranted, so it smells nice. So on a recent surf trip with all our mates, we did the traditional photo, where you get all your boards out in a circle, take a photo of the boards, look back at it over the years of what you used to ride. Now, being a good bloke, I offered to pack everyone's boards up for them while they all went off and did a surf check. So I did pack everyone's boards up, but not before I drew large male genitalia penises on everyone's boards with the coloured wax. Now, I thought it was quite humorous, but 
judging on the reactions that I got from our next uh, session, uh, no one else found it very funny. So please guys, tell me my penance or if you just think it was hilarious. So what is this sin that that's just screaming out to you, Mikey? I, I actually lied before. There is not a sin. There are two sins in this. And neither of them happen to be the one that the guy actually thinks is the sin. The okay, first one, sin, colored wax in general. Yes, right? colored wax. Okay, just that doesn't even need to be explained. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it anyway. So even, even if used ironically, I think colored wax is absolutely fucking horrendous. Like, it's worse than colored sunscreen. I did a wax test like five years ago, and I'm proud to say that I, I didn't sample anything colored whatsoever. It could be the best wax in the world, for all I know. Like, you could you could tell me that I could surf the rest of my life without falling once, land every air, make every tube, and I still would not use colored wax. Um, so that's that. And then we have the quiver photo. I mean, you're not a pro surfer. You're not in Hawaii. Steve Sherman is nowhere in sight. The fact that you think this is like a prerequisite to a surf trip is really concerning to me. Um, if the only things that I knew about this guy, Bill, were that he used color wax and took quiver photos every time that he went on a surf trip, I would 100% assume he was Scandinavian. But the fact that you're from one of the most core surfing communities on earth makes absolutely no sense to me. Like, who are this guy's friends on the south coast of New South Wales that he's getting away with this stuff? Do you like? Does this make any sense to you? Okay, the colored wax, yeah, I I'm with you there. But the quiver photo, I mean, the way he even says it too, like think about what we're riding. Then I think, yeah, I, I back it. Like he puts them in a circle, Buckley. He puts his surfboards in a circle and presumably sits in the middle of them. We don't know that he sits in the middle, Mikey. Okay, we can't. Buck, we we kind of know though. We kind of know. <laughs> We don't know, though. We don't know that he sits in the middle. It's implied. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think he sits in the middle. I think, I don't know, when I'm like, like I have friends visiting town now, I think I'd like to have a memory. At some point, I'd like to have some sort of visual thing that I could, you know, you could not only see how you look then, but you could see the boards you're riding. Like, I get it. Like, I'm not afraid of doing something that's a little bit cliche to have the memory it counts like any photograph i don't like taking photographs like but sometimes there's a moment that you want to be able to look back on and that's the way he kind of framed it and so i fucking back it i mean we we took that photo in hawaii last year right with our local motions behind our back like pushed up so it looked like they were like mega guns and like that's obviously corny but it's also like you know done ironically and and funny and fun and lovely and everything but to put your boards in a circle and he sat in the middle of them, Buckley. I just, I, I really need you to accept that fact. You don't know, I don't know. it. It's, you don't it's know too it. far for me. Okay, so regardless of that, I actually feel like he did sort of redeem himself by drawing giant colored penises in all of his friends' sports. Like, I realize that that's what he thought was maybe the sin, but to me, that's the only redeeming part of this entire spiel that he gave us. And I'd really, I'd like to imagine that he used like a vast array of colors for each penis. Like, they were just a quiver of giant rainbow phalluses. And um, that's like the only justifiable use of colored wax, in my opinion. And and the only justifiable use of taking a quiver photos if they all have giant rainbow penises on them. Okay, okay. Um, as we often do, I'm coming at this from a similar angle. And I'm going to go the altruism route as well. I'm going to read between the lines a little bit, though. 
And to me, I think what his friends were probably most upset about was the fact that it's impermanent. Like, human beings, we hate change. So I would imagine that his friends were really upset that this wax would kind of go away. With more wax jobs, you could scrape it off. So I do think that's probably what they were most upset about (laughs) when he drew on the boards. So I think in the name of, in the spirit of altruism, really... I think he needs to go with the more permanent option next time. And especially the guy who was most upset about it being impermanent, like whoever felt the most angry that you had done it, like get him because he was clearly the one that he wanted it more. He was upset. They had this sweet drawing that um, wouldn't last. So it just, my penance is just to do this permanent artwork on the bottom of the board, maybe with spray paint and that will make you heal. Didn't uh didn't you do this or somebody maybe it was another surf center did something very similar to this? The amount of penises that would have been drawn on surfboards over the years is just immense. It's 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 a great tradition and I don't want it to stop to be honest. Can we add that to our bet actually that whatever board the other person gets us has to have a penis on it? Yeah, but I like a sneaky one. I like one that just like it it looks like it shouldn't be, but everybody else is like, "Oh, that you probably went for something else, but that definitely looks like a dick." <laughs> I actually I think I have a photo of you on a really old iPhone. Um you had a penis on a board that was uh at Lower Trestles for NSSA Nationals. You would have been probably like 16 or something. Yeah. You remember that? Yep. I mean, there I have surfed with many penises on many surfboards. Yeah. Like, you know, a lot. So this is nothing new, which is why I can relate to this impermanent thing. Like he probably just wanted it built into the board forever. So that makes sense. I mean, I've had, it, it sucks to lose one. It sucks to lose one. If it's just in wax and it's gone, it's really upsetting. It's a hard thing to go through and process. So I think that's what he needs to do. Really hard, really hard. Okay. Well, those are your two penance options. And I think you probably know which is the best one. God bless. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Drop. If you want to leave us your own surf sin, you know where to find us, buck at stabmag.com and michael at stabmag.com. We are always here to deliver a fair and righteous penance. And, yeah, looking forward, we've got so much more coming. Another episode of Van Stab High presented by Monster Energy next week. And what else? Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hawaii, Vans Pipe Masters, all the beautiful things in the world. So we got a lot to look forward to in the coming weeks, months, years. The drop never dies. Over and out.